This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Let's have all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. All right. Hey, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. Today, I have a good friend of mine, someone I've known for as long as I've been clean, Dr. Barry. Dr. Barry was one of those people that when I got clean, you were like the definition of like young recovery and like long-term recovery. Because when I got clean, people would be like, oh, I got clean once when I was young and then I relapsed or like there wasn't like sustained, a lot of sustained people who got clean young and stayed. And you're one of those guys who was like, young cool funny down to earth you made recovery like you know attractive you made it fun like you've always been like a pillar in broward county south florida as somebody who's like super solid so i appreciate you coming on the show thank you thank you for having Mm -hmm. me and um the the one thing i remember about you brian was you were and and you can correct me if i'm wrong yeah go for it but you were i believe smoking crack in your high school class and yeah. blowing the crack smoke into your backpack. Yeah, that's one of my <laughs> tall tell stories. Yeah, and it seems crazy now. Yeah, I got kicked out of school and I was going to like a reform school and one of the kids there used to sell drugs and I used to be like, you know, can you get me these pills or whatever? And then I was eventually asking him for crack. And one day he brought crack to school yeah, like sometimes I would have leftover crack from the night before and I would smoke Wait, it. Wait, no school. one has leftover crack. Well, it wasn't leftover crack, so it's not like I stopped smoking, but it was like I was smoking crack all night, and then the sun came up, and I still had pushes left, and I still had like a little bit of crack, but I still had to go to school. So (laughs) You were like a somewhat of a responsible crack smoker. So my mom, like my parents would freak out if I didn't go to school, and they'd be mortified if I was home alone. Like my parents never left me home alone. Like there was times where I'd be dope sick, and I wouldn't be able to go to school. And my mom would stay home and make sure, like, she watched me because my parents didn't want me alone by myself. She's like, look, Brian. Yeah. If you're going to smoke crack, you're going to do it in school. I don't care. You got to be in school. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They pretty much were. Like, as long as you, if I didn't go to school, they knew, like, I was getting into something horrible. So at least they knew I was in school. But yeah, there was times where I got cracked the night before and I still have some. And then I would bring my stem and my sock. I would smoke crack in the bathrooms and then it's kind of hard to keep going back and forth to the bathroom. So eventually I would take hits under the desk. I would try to keep it in my lungs as much as possible, but then I would burp smoke and I would burp it into my backpack. (laughs) So when I was in high school, there there was this really great band called Motley Crue. Yeah. I'm a big Motley Crue fan. All right. So they had a a song, right? Smoking, smoking in the, the boys' room. room. Yeah. I don't think they were talking about crack, though. They weren't. But the first time I got kicked out of school as a kid, I was smoking weed in the boys' room. 
And on the way home, when my dad picked me up from getting uh, expelled from school, that song came on the radio. Did you ever get caught smoking crack in school? So there was times where kids would, I would snort a lot of pills and people would see me smoking something, but they, they didn't know what it was. They'd be like, what the fuck? So, but when I would snort pills, people would be like freak out. And sometimes they would get up and run to security and be like, yo, some kid's doing drugs in class. Probably seven times security would come and search me and they never found anything except for one time. One time they found a pill crusher and there was residue in the pill crusher. Yeah, I think back, my oldest daughter right now, she's in sixth grade, she's in middle school. So I had me reflecting a little bit. Yeah. And and I remember I was in sixth grade at Pines Middle School, Mm -hmm. Pembroke Pines. Yeah, just so people know, what's interesting about you is that you're also Florida native. Born and raised. Born and raised Floridian. A yeah. real Florida Call us a unicorn, but, yeah, you know. absolutely. The definition of a unicorn today might be a little bit uh-huh. different. Yeah, so I was um, in sixth grade, and literally it was my first week, mm-hmm. maybe even my first day. And I saw these older kids, right? And what I mean by older, like seventh or Seven. eighth grade. Okay. And they were walking off campus, like, before school even started, and they mm-hmm. were smoking cigarettes. And I remember thinking, like, they're fucking crazy. Like, mm-hmm. and I went and told my teacher. Wow, you tattletailed. <laughs> snitch. I, you know, I was a snitch and, and uh, I was wow. I was still young. I was like just turning 13, mm-hmm. I think. No, just turning 11. 11. 11. Yeah, you're like 11, 12 in sixth grade and you're 12 and 13 and seven. Yeah. So I was just turning 11. I was on the younger side because my birthday's in August. So I had mm-hmm. just made the cutoff. Gotcha. I was talking to my daughter about that this morning mm-hmm. at Starbucks because she's like, the youngest in her grade. She's mm, like just thing. turned 11 in September. So, but, you know, looking back, like how innocent we were, what's interesting though, is if I look even further back, the first time I ever tried smoking a cigarette, I was in fourth grade. Hmm. My dad um, used to smoke parliaments. Mm-hmm. This was before anybody knew what a parliament was, right? It was all Marlboro mm-hmm. and, and he had these, cigarettes that had these recess filters. Yeah, I was wondering if they were still like that. Yeah, he was, you know, my dad's from Argentina. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that was kind of like the cigarette of choice in another country. And and he would just get them here and he used to keep them in. He had a pickup truck that was just like a two-seater, like because of the bed in the back. And mm-hmm. the front seat would like fold open and closed. And he used to keep a carton. And so one day me and my friends, like, we just, you know, found his cigarettes and we're like, let's try these. Mm-hmm. And that was in fourth grade. Now I'm fucking ratting people out in sixth grade for smoking yeah. cigarettes because I was like, you know, not doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. My, how things have changed. But yeah, I smoked cigarettes in fourth grade for the first time too. Yeah. It was, you know, and I, I want to get into a little bit of my story and, and we talk a lot about. Let me ask you something about your daughter. So how old is your daughter? She's in sixth grade? She's in sixth and I have another daughter who's in third grade who's eight. What's it like with them with technology? Because I've been uh, talking to people that like a lot of young, the younger generation doesn't want to drive because of Uber. And like a lot of like, these kids aren't getting their like driver's They're not license. getting their permit. Yeah. I mean, she's not at that point. What's crazy mm-hmm. is we talked about all of this this morning. We're, oh, wow. we, we were sitting outside. So I have mm-hmm. a little routine when she my wants girl, to drive though. Yeah. At this point, you know, she's 11. She's okay. like, you know, cool. I can't wait. And she's like, mm-hmm. mommy didn't have a car until she was 18. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, I had one when I was 16. She's like, can I get one when I'm 16? I'm like, hey, you know, the, the old parent answer is, we'll see how you behave. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. you got a good five years to behave yeah. well to, to work to towards car. that car. But we were just talking about that this morning because she was asking me, 
why she's the youngest in her grade. Mm -hmm. And the answer was we had her in private school and her birthday is September 22nd. And in public school, the cutoff is like September 1st. Mm. So we had her in pre-K, preschool. She did kindergarten in private school. And then we moved to Parkland and we wanted to get her into public schools because mm -hmm. that was like the biggest reason we moved there was to schools. Mm -hmm. And when we went to do that, they're like, sorry, you know, the rule is we go by age and she would have to repeat kindergarten if she wants to start here in public school. But there is a loophole. If you continue in private school for first grade, you can automatically go into second grade. Gotcha. So we kept her in private school for first year. grade. Yep. And now, so she, you know, started public in second grade. But because of that, she's the youngest. So this mm -hmm. morning I was telling her, I'm like, it's going to suck. Mm -hmm. It's going to suck when you get to high school because <laughs> all of your friends are going to have their license before you. Mm -hmm. And you're just, you're going to have to wait. I'm like, I kind of had to deal with that because mm -hmm. my birthday's like in August. So I was always the youngest in my grade too. Like when I went to college, I was 17. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't too happy about that, but she's like got goals now. She's going to work towards cool. getting her permit at 15 and driving at 16. I just think it's so crazy that like kids can just like look up anything at any point in time, the internet on their phone. She has a cell phone? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She got one when she was 10. Wow. Yeah. My youngest does not yet, but she mm -hmm. has an iPod and an iPad. Mm -hmm. I mean, technology is ridiculous today. All right, like when I grew up, like I had idols, like, mm -hmm. you know, and things I wanted to do and people I wanted to be like, like my girls want to be like YouTubers. Yeah, yeah, you know, like YouTubers, that, that's all they want, influencers. And I'll tell you what. They say influencer is the number one career yeah. that kids want to do. And they're talking about China. It's like uh, astronaut and scientist. Right. And here it's, I want to be famous on YouTube. Yeah. I want to be an influencer. There, There is mm -hmm. an influencer out there. We're a little worried about her right now. Mm -hmm. Both of my daughters turned me on to this girl. It's mm -hmm. SS Sniper Wolf. Mm -hmm. She's phenomenal, by the way. She does 10-minute videos where she reviews like weird TikToks. Okay. But they're funny, mm -hmm. right? Like it, it keeps my, she hasn't posted in like 14 days. Oh, so you guys are worried about her. We're worried her. about her. I think she might be in treatment. She hasn't posted in 14 days. Like, it had me Googling, like, what where is, to? what happened? What were people saying? There's nothing. Wow. There's stuff from, like, 2021. Like, wow. yeah, there's nothing out right now. Mm -hmm. So, and this this woman posts, like, she's 30 years old. She posts mm -hmm. every, every day. Every single day. And wow. uh, today's day 14 that she hasn't posted, so. Wow. I dated a girl who's, like, semi-famous online, and she didn't post for, like, a year. And I, I like, stopped talking to her about Because of that? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, like, wondering what. I was, like, did she die? I was, like, Googling if she was dead or whatever. It was crazy because she posted, like, every day for years. Someone had passed away, and I think uh, she just took time off, and then she uh, moved back to Colombia. But she just said she got sick of social media. No no, no, like, note or anything. There's nothing, right? Just, is like, she posting again now? I think she posts, like, once every six months. Oh, uh, so she's lost her influence. She status. doesn't care. She okay. just doesn't. It's weird. So maybe that happened. Uh, yeah, my ex said to me, she's know. like, maybe she's just on vacation. Yeah. Like, yeah, she has no obligation to tell anyone like, why. Like, influencers take vacations? Yeah, I guess. Like, yeah, they don't uh, notify the world of people who are checking their YouTube 85 times a day to see Yeah, I read this post. book about this girl who was like an influencer and she like realized how annoying she is because whenever she would go on vacation with like her boyfriend, she would like make him do all these fucking videos and stuff. It's almost like you can't do anything without recording it. You know, it's like- Or being recorded. Or being recorded or doing something or like, it's almost like if you didn't record it, you could can't enjoy it. And it's almost like the opposite thing. It's like, 
on another note, yeah, if we're gonna if we're gonna take a sadistic, mm-hmm. you know, look at this too, it's really hard to be a criminal these days. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to everything's like, recorded. I know it's, it's crazy. hard to commit scams. You see and, all the ring camera that catches crimes. Bro, I walked up to your house. It, it, uh-huh. it wasn't even on the DL. It's like yeah. you're being you're recorded, recorded yeah. bitch. Yeah, motherfucker. <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, my doorknob does that. Yeah, it's like, you're being recorded. And it like, it's, a, it's called like a deter. It's part of the app. Like, oh, it scared me from taking yeah. your two cases of water you had on the front porch. I'll bring it in later. <laughs> like, like, it's very, pretty, you know, mm-hmm. times are tough. Yeah, hell yeah. But So it's like, yeah, so one, it's really hard to be a criminal or to do anything. You know what I saw the other day is that this woman found like a human bone out like in some middle of nowhere in the woods and then they looked at google earth and were able to find that there was all these this one car who would like go up into the woods over and over and over and like they stop it they found like 20 girls buried over there so there's a show i'm watching right now on netflix called the texas killing fields oh yeah and it's a true i'm i'm all about true crime okay me too i spend like Every night, if I'm not watching Sniper Wolf, I'm watching nice, True Crime. relaxing thing. Yeah, right yeah. before bed. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I definitely don't dream about murders or committing <laughs> murders or anything like that. But I'm, I'm immune now. There you go. But there's a show on Netflix now called The Texas Killing Fields. And I'm only in episode two, but it's this area in Texas near Galveston that this property that's hundreds of acres, they've now discovered tons of women's remains Hmm. in this one spot so i haven't got to the point where if it's a serial killer if they found the person wow you know but it shows like the parents of the the kids who went missing the girls who went missing oh my god and who are the suspects i'm i'm heavy into this right now but i don't know if it's the same thing you're talking about with the google earth maybe i don't know it's interesting but it, it's crazy how like the phenomenon of like serial kill like we don't really hear about serial killers anymore. you can't be a serial killer anymore because you just get because caught. of technology because the dna and everything, everything. think yeah. about it you know how easy it was to be a serial killer in the 70s that's why there were so many yeah is that is that the answer is just technology is hard now there was no DNA testing. Yeah. There were no cameras outside recording cars going by. Not just by. that, your phone. You know what I just realized the other day? Phone towers, communications, uh-huh. text messages, binging off towers. They know where you are. I just learned this. So if you send someone a picture, I didn't know that if you save the picture and you scroll up. Yeah, you could see exactly where see they took it. Where it was taken. What time? If they, dude, face tuned, <laughs> if they face tuned it. Yeah. That tells you all this shit. I was like, what? It blew my mind. Yeah, I went through the whole dating phase for a minute. And, you know, if somebody yeah, would send me a picture, picture you I'd download like, it. And no, like, I'd be like, why are you sending that from like four February? Years ago. Yeah, February <laughs> I'd call yeah. them out. Like, I almost wanted to call out this girl because I was like, because <laughs> one, it was Facetuned. Two, it was from May. Yeah. And I wanted to be like, did you send me this picture or did you just send me a picture? You got you to gotta say something. I didn't want to say they'll anything. They'll never do bad. it again. I felt bad. They'll never do it again. I felt. I was like, whatever. You can send me an old picture. I don't care. That's one of the benefits, though. Uh-huh. If you're an iPhone user mm-hmm. and you're texting with somebody who's an Android, you don't have to mm-hmm. worry about that. You can send oh, them they, old shit. Oh, they don't care? No. And that I don't makes... think you could do the same thing with bad. a picture from Android. 
Wow. So have to try it just out. Just date Android users. There you go. <laughs> Even though I hate them. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I hate Android. It's so crazy. You know what I was thinking is uh, I was watching this Patrick Bet David interview, and he was saying, like, dude, there's only two phone companies. Like, it's horrible. There's no competition. And I was thinking, like, yeah, it is kind of weird that there's only two phone companies. The AT&T and Verizon? Yeah. Well, no, well, it's Apple and Android. Oh, two phone. Okay, not, not providers. Not like providers, you know? Well, no, now there's Google. Yeah, but who uses that? Did, I mean, they have the Google Pixel phone, right? Gotcha. That, that I've seen all these commercials for during the world. Well, they're you know? saying, like, it's good that Tesla is thinking about making a phone or has flirted with the idea about making a phone. Tesla's the shit. You love your Tesla. I huh? love my Tesla. It's like a mobile iPhone. It's that awesome. Oh, it's a mobile Mac. It's a yeah. computer. Yeah, the car gets better over time. Like, there's mm-hmm. no service on it. Uh, it'll pop up on your app. Software update available. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you can go six times as Faster, fast. Yeah. You know, there's like you know eight what different I don't like? more features. You know what I hate about Tesla is the driving score. I don't know what mine is. I haven't signed up for the whole beta. Oh, so you got to sign up for it? Because can't you only use the auto drive if you're like a good driver? Okay, so here's the scam, okay? And sorry, Tesla, I still love you. But mm-hmm. when you buy your Tesla, you can sign up for full self-driving capability right? Mm -hmm. Every car comes with autopilot, right? Every car has autopilot, which means you can hit the stock two times Mm -hmm. and it will keep you in your lane. It'll slow down. If it's a red light, Mm -hmm. it'll go if it's a green light, but it's not going to change lanes for you. It's not going to turn where your GPS says to turn. That would be full self-driving capability. Hmm. When you buy your car, they initially put the price at $12,000 to have full Mm self-driving. Recently, over the last two months or so, they raised the price to 15000 on top of the price of the car to mm-hmm. have this full self-driving. What they don't tell you is you can subscribe to full self-driving for $199 a month. Wow. Yes. So you can have that $15,000 package for 200, bucks a month. for 200 bucks a month because it's month to month. You could cancel it anytime. Anytime. But if you spent the, fi- excuse me, fifteen grand. uh huh You'd literally have to own your car for like 67 months for yeah. it to make sense. Yeah. It just doesn't no make does. sense. Yeah. And no one, who owns a car for 67 yeah. months? Two, three years. Nice. Right. So you can sign up for this for 199 but I've never signed up for it because I don't need it. Yeah. But I I'm know just, where I'm going. <laughs> I like driving. I like driving. <laughs> but wait, wait. But if your driving record or driving score is not great and like you've ran a bunch of red lights or stop signs or you speed, they'll take away the ability, right? Correct. Even if you pay the 15 grand? Yes. That's crazy. Yeah, they'll See, like I suspend like, you. I don't like that because it's like it feels too big brothery. It's like I don't want you watching my driving. They're watching anyways. It's weird. It makes me feel weird. Like if they really wanted to, they could ticket everyone who speeds because they could time it. I think they do that in California. They don't really need to check if you're speeding because they have a time thing at the tolls. So if you got here t- to here in less than... What if you got off at an exit? They have it. They thought of it, all right? So they have ways <laughs> where it's like, well, maybe there's one at the exit. They know how fast it would be. But they know well, they started at certain points. So that they know that if you went through this point to get to this point, if you went the speed limit, it could only take you this fast. So if you got there faster, boom, automatic ticket. Like, I don't like that. No, I don't, I don't like that either. Like, to if be you're honest. a cop and you caught me with a radar gun. Fair game. Fair game. But you can't do this. Bro, I got violated. My very first speeding ticket, I got violated. What happened? I was 16 was years old. Was it the airplane? 
Yes. I was 16 the years old. fucked up, right? In my, it doesn't feel good. Bro, I was 16 years old in my 86 Camaro, mm-hmm. okay? And I was on a travel basketball team, and I was driving to Kendall mm-hmm. for a game. You know, with, I was in high school, and I was on the turnpike extension that kind of takes you, like, towards Homestead. Mm-hmm. You know, not like the other turnpike that takes you to, like, Orlando, but, you know. I went through, like, a toll booth. As I'm getting out of the toll booth, there's a trooper there, and he's waving me to pull over. I was literally doing the speed limit at that point. So you thought he was talking to someone else? Well, I didn't know. I, I, I couldn't understand what he mm-hmm. wanted. Like, I, you know, it was my first time being pulled over. I'm 16, mm-hmm. and he's like, license and registration. And I said, officer, I was, like, waving at you because I was, like, really doing good. I wasn't. He's like, you weren't back there. We have an airplane in the air. It's called Vascar. Yeah. And they have these, and you'll notice them the next time you're on the mm-hmm. highway. Every so often, you'll see these huge white strips that go across That's the highway. What they are? And what they do is they have a plane above, and they time you from strip to strip. Wow. And they can figure out to the— So that's how they do it. I thought it was a plane running radar. They can figure out to the, 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 millisecond, the, the millisecond how fast you were going. Yeah, I don't like that. I, I got scooped by a plane. It's like too much. I, it's like too much oversight, you know? And it's like now with all the cameras and stuff, it feels weird. Like, like you should have some privacy. And it's like, uh, I don't freak out about the phone. Like people freak out about like the phone. Like when you talk, they try to sell you an ad. Like that's real, right? I what do you they, mean? They've proven that. Where like if I say. Oh, like Facebook. Yeah. If I say like, man, I really want to go watch that new movie that came out. And then I get an ad for the yes, movie. That is real. That's real. Mm-hmm. For a long time, it was like, is, and people thought they're just going crazy. But no, yeah, it's real. <laughs> yeah, they're listening to your microphone when your phone is in your pocket. Mm-hmm. I pay my taxes. You pay your taxes. Yeah. I, I love my, the IRS. Yeah, I love the IRS. They're the best. <laughs> but um, it's, it's really insane. But anyways, how long have you been clean? 26 and a half years. Wow. So I met you almost 15 years ago. Yeah, I got clean in almost 26 and a half. I got You're clean in 18. June of 1996. You're 18? I was 20. 20, okay. Two months before my 21st birthday. Two months before your 21st birthday. Yeah, you got clean younger. 17. You were 17. Yeah. So you're from Broward. What, what was growing up like? Most of my damage that I did initially mm-hmm. was away from Broward. It was like up at school in Gainesville. And then I thought like if I just left Gainesville and came back home, I would get better. And I mm-hmm. left there when I was 19 like I said, I went up to school when I was 17, mm-hmm. and I was there for two years. My very first semester at the University of Florida, I got a .33 grade point average. Excellent. Which is equivalent to two Fs a D in a withdrawal from a course. I'm not trying to brag, but on crack, I got A's and B's. I mean, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. But, but it wasn't college-level classes. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, you're right. I, couldn't, I wouldn't even be able to go to college if right. that was the case. Imagine yeah. if you were living would, on your own. Yeah, I'm not even Would you be getting A's and B's? You wouldn't be going to class. Couldn't even get out of bed. That was my issue. Like, I wasn't going to class. Okay. So, okay. you know, like, I did fairly well to be able to get into that school. It's mm-hmm. not an easy school to get into. It was much easier in 1993 when I started there mm-hmm. than it is today. Today, it's like an Ivy League school. It's like, you got to have a... UF? Yeah, you have to have like a 5.0 GPA Mm -hmm. and, you know, you have to be like the president of your class. Mm -hmm. And Parents have to donate a million dollars. All these other things. You know, when I went there, it was like I did okay on my SATs. I had like a 3.5 grade point average from high school. Okay. Didn't take AP classes. Now, in high school, were you 
smoking pot? Yeah. I started smoking weed when I was 13. And we, did you like fall in love? I did. You know, I, I guess the best way I can explain it, you asked me what it was like growing up here. And, and I want to touch a little bit before even getting on drugs mm-hmm. because I think that part's important. And it's not that I had this horrific childhood. Or, yeah, I think your story was so interesting to me because a lot of times going to meetings, you hear stories and they're all like, I was raped. This happened to me. I went to jail. My mm-hmm. mom was a drug addict. I grew up around, you know, a horrible environment. And I didn't hear a lot of people's messages that were like, I grew up in the suburbs, you know, and you were one of those people that had a similar childhood to me that didn't make me feel like I didn't belong there because I didn't have a a horrific childhood. Now, there was dysfunction. Of course. Like every childhood, but it wasn't blatant and obvious. No. It was more of like a... The thing, and again, anything I express today is my opinion, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, It's nothing I've read in a book, Mm -hmm. but I do believe that addiction runs way deeper than the substance. Absolutely. Okay. And I think we can all agree on that. Like I look back at behaviors way before I ever picked up a drug Mm -hmm. that looking back today were red flags, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was a total entrepreneur. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) All right. I'm talking fourth grade, stopping at Eckerd Drugs. Mm-hmm. Buying a big bag of blow pops, shoving them all in my knapsack, mm-hmm. going to school and selling each blow pop for 25 cents. Mm-hmm. And then coming back at the end of the day and having a lot more money than I started with. I remember yeah. being in college, buying a big bag of weed and dumping mm-hmm. it all into smaller parts and selling it yeah. for this and having a lot more money than I started with. Mm-hmm. I remember being in fourth grade and, and we had cinnamon toothpicks. And people would sell these cinnamon toothpicks for like 10 cents. Mm -hmm. And you would like soak them overnight in the cinnamon oil and people would buy them. And in class, you can kind of chew on them and the cinnamon Mm -hmm. releases in your mouth. I'm like, fuck that. I'm going to do a three-day soak and sell them for a quarter. Wow. So I had the triple pick. Okay. So wait, you would buy toothpicks you and buy you, would, toothpicks. you would soak them yourself? You wouldn't buy them like that? No, they didn't. you didn't buy cinnamon toothpicks back then. Wow. We're talking, this was... You could have 1982, 1983, uh-huh. right? They didn't sell cinnamon toothpicks. No, I don't know. They had cinnamon oil. Okay. So I would triple soak three days. I would soak these toothpicks mm-hmm. and then hype them up to everybody and then sell them for a quarter. And I was literally burning people's tongues off. Wow. Right? But it was like the good shit. A teen solo hiker who was terrorized for days by unknown figures dressed in white. Two cops who quit their job at a local theater because of an unexplained encounters with an alleged demon. An isolated forest in Canada where people keep turning up headless. These are just some of the strange, dark, and mysterious stories you'll hear each week on the Mr. Ballin podcast. In each episode, Mr. Ballin shares real-life haunting accounts like the case of Haley Zega, who disappeared from a hiking trail for 51 hours. When search and rescuers finally found her and asked how she survived, she simply said a friend helped her. She described this friend, four years old, black hair, and brown eyes. This friend was initially dismissed until they realized a girl had gone missing in that exact spot 23 years earlier and was never found. She was four years old, had black hair, and brown eyes. Hey, Prime members, listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast, 
Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange and Dark Mysterious Stories, and the Amazon Music app. Download the app today. Uh-huh. You know? So I looked at I can't feel my face. Yeah, I can't feel my face. So I look back to like a lot of that behavior, mm-hmm. and, and it may sound innocent, right? About a year ago during COVID, or maybe it was two years ago, I was at a meeting and it was on the beach in Pompano. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, literally on the beach, right? Mm-hmm. There were kind of like, there was like this fake grass kind of thing or some just outside where the ocean is. And it was like a good meeting to go to during COVID because it was outside. It was Saturday, every Saturday night. It's still there. I think it's at eight o'clock. And my daughters are with me on Saturday night. So I'd bring them. And then one of the meetings, my oldest spent, I think like 30 straight minutes behind the meeting in the wide open field literally spinning in circles. And after the meeting, she's like, Daddy, I spun for like 30 minutes. I got so dizzy and it felt so good. Mm, that's like a red flag. I'm like, fuck. I don't know, man. You know, like, you know when I was a kid, I used to spin and get dizzy. And then what I realized is that if I got a, I don't know why I thought this, but I got a gallon of milk from the fridge and spun with that and it would make me spin faster. But, yeah, spinning, huffing gas, um, all these things. Like, I was into mischief, like, breaking into houses. But I think, um, for me, like, the core of my addiction was this raging insecurity and a need to overcompensate. Thank you for bringing that up, okay? Because when I said that I wanted to touch on before picking up a substance, mm-hmm. you asked me if I, if I fell in love with weed. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that was yes. Because for the first time in a long time, I felt like I fit. The best way I can describe it is I had the uncanny ability to fit in with anybody doing anything. If you had weed, yeah. Before I had weed, Mm -hmm. okay? I had the ability to talk a certain way, dress a certain way, personality. Mm -hmm. I could hang out with the sports guys. I can hang out with the burnouts, which I did a lot. (laughs) I could hang out with... The nerds, I can hang out with anybody, but on the inside, I never, ever felt like I fit. It's the the best way to put it. I never felt... Yeah, and I feel like when I... Because I was the same way, and I feel like when I would do that, I had this feeling of being a fraud and wearing a mask. Yes. And that feeling that someone might find out at any given time. And then have like this paranoid feeling of having to catch up. And then not being able to accept people accepting me so i would think that yeah you like me but you only like me because i play this persona you know so i would never be able to feel it even though you accepted me and you were like my friend i always had this feeling of like okay but if i stopped doing x y and z you wouldn't be my friend anymore so how how incredible is it that you and i are sitting here with decades clean Mm -hmm. and we felt the same way decades ago right Mm -hmm. so that leads me to believe and i know it's a very small sample size We're not alone. Well, I think every meeting that I've ever been to, I've identified the most when people would share that exact thing. And I think that is more of addiction than the drug use. Right. So I remember this lady said, I always felt like a broken crayon in a crayon box and just little things like that. And it's like, there's just something that we all have that we just identify with, you know? There's a a woman who we all know, her name's Dana. Mm -hmm would share when she told her story, she used to say, my whole life I felt like I was a black sheep. Mm -hmm. And when I came into NA, I found my hurt. 
right? And that's something I related to. So, But when I found that substance, and you can substitute X, Y, Z for whatever that substance was, mm-hmm. but when I found that substance for the first time in a long time, I felt whole. Mm-hmm. And there was a very strong connection made between taking that substance and feeling better. Mm-hmm. And I think at the end of the day, as a human being, for any of us, addiction, no addiction, you live in Africa, Asia, or the United States of America, in general, the goal for people every single day of their life is to feel better. Mm-hmm. Nobody wakes up and says, wow, I wish I really felt worse today. Yeah. Right? Certain people find certain tools and put them in their toolbox that give them that feel-good feeling, right? And then there's certain people who turn to artificial things mm-hmm. that give them that same tool. But no matter what it is, when that connection is made, it becomes very hard to break for somebody who is afflicted with the disease of addiction. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the difference was is that when I smoked weed, I was like, I want to feel like this all the time, every day, nonstop, 24-7. And being high needs to be my normal. It's the normal. I need to be high all the time to do anything. Yeah, that is the one substance among the many substances I did Mm -hmm. leading up to me going into detox. That is the one substance that was a constant Mm -hmm. in my life. I I got off it. I I ended up not liking weed, Mm. but I was, as much as I liked weed, I noticed that some people would be like, no, I don't want to smoke. I'm going to go to school. I'll smoke after. I noticed that like other Mm. people didn't feel this way. After? I I had friends who were like, well. Not on the way? Yeah, not like, yeah, like I remember smoking a blunt and people would be like, are you high? And I would think to myself, like, I've been high for like four months nonstop. Like I was high on the way here. I smoked weed when I woke up. Like I realized that not everybody smokes weed like this, like. I had weed attached to my finger or something, you know? Other than the substance, I was obsessed and in love with being the guy who had weed and, like, the control that it had. The attention. The attention that I would get respect from other people. And all that insecurity is also based on, like, this false outside thing where it's like, you don't like me, you just like that I have weed and that I have connections. And I think at a young age, I was incapable of having real connections with people because it all felt fake where it's like, you only like me because of X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. and I'm just using you. And people became, you know, you start using people and you start to realize people use you. So I think I stopped believing that, like, anyone really cared. That's, that's spot on. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how much I relate to that. And for me, though, it was more so when I was up at school because I had this new identity around people I hadn't been around. And, and I was and got knees deep into doing things I shouldn't have done mm-hmm. with people I shouldn't have been with going places I shouldn't have gone. And that that was the end result. But when you're in it, it feels so good, mm-hmm. okay? And, and I remember the first time I did ecstasy, if it was even ecstasy, <laughs> okay? It was called an old-school groover, and they were these press pills with these big brown dots in them, and mm-hmm. come to find out later the big brown dots were heroin, but I remember taking that for the first time, and I was I was at my old roommate's house in the student ghetto, which was not the ghetto. It was just called the student ghetto right off campus. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to this guy who was already on it, and he had this white stuff in the corner of his 
lips and every time he talked, there would be like a string that popped. I remember this vividly, okay? Mm -hmm. And he looks at me, he goes, start with a half. I said, what? He said, start by taking the half. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. I was just new to me. I'd never done this before. I, I followed directions. I took a half. 20 to 25 minutes later, I felt this wave come over me of just instant nausea, like I was going to puke. And then literally within 45 seconds, I felt better than I've ever felt in my entire life to this day. (laughs) That moment was the best I've ever felt in my Mm -hmm. entire life. And my first thought was, holy shit, I'm in trouble. Right there at that moment, Mm -hmm. I knew at, at 18 years old, Mm-hmm. that I was fucked, royally fucked. Yeah. And that was one of the greatest nights of my life. Glorify, not glorify. When we come into recovery, it's not about being brainwashed that we don't enjoy being high, mm-hmm. right? And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But that night changed my life. Within a month, okay, I was buying 500 pills at a time. Not for my own consumption, mm-hmm. right? I was doing it to make 10 free for myself or whatever the case mm-hmm. was, right? Back then, each pill was selling for like 30 bucks, mm-hmm. 25 bucks, which was a lot for somebody yeah, in college. for one pill, yeah. I was driving to Orlando from Gainesville to mm-hmm. going to this club called Firestone. I became in with all these DJs in the rave scene. Mm-hmm. I had DJ IC and DJ Stylus and D-Extreme all staying in my <laughs> apartment in Gainesville when they would come mm-hmm. perform at Simon's. And we had Kiyoki, who was the resident DJ at Limelight that was coming into town. I was like enthralled with anything and everything that had to do with ecstasy being in the scene and being a dealer. And I got mm-hmm. to a point, we had this club in Gainesville called Simon's. And Simon's was the the rave club, okay? Mm-hmm. Like you would literally first go there at 2 a.m. on a Saturday night. Okay. I reached the status of having other people do my work for me. Mm-hmm. Here I am. I'm 18, 18 and a half years old. I now have a pool table in my apartment. I'm making money. School? Mm-hmm. Like, what about school? Like, I wasn't going to class and I got addicted not only to the substance, the but lifestyle. to the culture, yeah. right? To, to being the man mm-hmm. for the first time, to really feeling like I fit for the first time, to really feeling like I was wanted for mm-hmm. the first time. So there were a lot of connections that were made with that process on top of, I remember thinking, uh, I went home on like spring break and I remember thinking like, if my mom and dad only tried ecstasy, they would truly get it. <laughs> and I, and I'm ashamed to admit this, but I contemplated slipping some in their drink. I never did. But that's <laughs> how sick I was because mm-hmm. I'm like, they just have to feel this. I remember being home on break Whoa. and we went to see the movie Twister in the movie theaters. Yeah, that movie's awesome. I went on ecstasy with my parents. Yeah. And my dad was 100% sure I was high. Mm-hmm. And I had the stuff I bought off the back page of High Times magazine. Mm-hmm. It was called like... The Wizinator? Uh, no, dude. They didn't have a Wizinator back then. This was like... They had like the stuff you could pour into your urine. Okay. That completely just cleared it. Okay. Mm-hmm. I kept it in my bathroom. Dude, the lengths I went to to pull over... And my mother was always like, see, Ernie? See, mm-hmm. he, he's not high. Look, his drug test is clean. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just, ha- I'm telling them, like, I fucking love them in the middle of the movie theater, mm-hmm. grinding my teeth and my pupils are this big. <laughs> but I think that the 
connection that was made not only with the actual substance, but the lifestyle plays a big role in a lot of people who are afraid to make a change. Mm -hmm. And then they get clean, but they don't change the lifestyle, and then they keep using it and don't see why. And you really have to—it's a tightrope in the beginning. You know, I always tell people, it's like, dude, you got to dedicate three to four years to meetings, 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 recovery, and— you know, all that other stuff that you do, you might just have to put it on the shelf for a while. And then, you know, if you want to pick it up after you have some foundation, my first, like I have people that get clean, they go to like two, three meetings a week after like three months. And I was like, dude, I went every single day for years. So if you look at my life now and say, oh, I want to be like you, like you don't see do what I did, what I did to get here. Mm-hmm. Like I spent pro- maybe like five years. I went to meetings every single day. Same only hung out with people in recovery, was scared to hang out and socialize with other people. Didn't you start the 10 p.m. meeting? Uh, I started or the, the best, meeting, the best ever? meeting ever. Yeah. Starting meetings. And wasn't there a HMI. meeting, I can't feel my face? I started the I can't feel my face meeting. Yeah. <laughs> so like, dude, I was heavy into meetings, reading the literature. I remember I used to bring the basic oh, text yeah, to the spoke. gym. I used to bring the basic text everywhere with me. You know, I'd be on the elliptical reading the basic text. I brought it to me to, with, to high school. I was listening to speaker tapes in my car. I was going to conventions. Speaker tapes. You know, so it's like spiritual retreat. The spiritual retreat coming, coming up. up. Oh my god, April? it's gonna be insane! I saw you. I saw your post. I'm so excited. It, what, what's it been like? Five years since we've gone. It's been a, I, dude. I have not been in probably personally. I have not been in probably. And they probably haven't done it in like six. Something like that. Something like that. Wow. I've never. I gotta be honest. I've never. Missed I only it. camped once. I camped three times. I think I was bougie. I was at Hawks K. Okay. It was one one, mm-hmm. and then we stayed at this place called. The buccaneer. Okay. Everyone's always like, I can't buccaneer you. Where are you at? <laughs> but no, it's just such a great time, man. Yeah. Even I went to the H&I. We had like an H&I gratitude thing on Sunday, I think it was. I like, I still go to meetings and stuff, but everyone goes to different meetings now. You don't see like all the same people, but like at that gratitude dinner, seeing so many people all at the same place from our area because of COVID. Yeah, Calvin. And it just feels... I see Calvin at the Isles Casino because we both play poker. Oh, really? That's yeah. cool. He'll be like, Dr. Barry. <laughs> yeah, he's the man. There's just some people that like, man, when you embrace them, it's like family times 10. It's like you can't. It's such a strong connection we have in recovery. It's crazy. I, I, I get it, man. I mean, listen, I have spent now more than half my life in recovery, mm-hmm. right? I'm 47 years old and I got clean when I was 20. More than half my life that I've spent in recovery. And and mm-hmm. you go through phases. There's a little burnout process yeah. sometimes with the meetings. Mm-hmm. But I stay connected. You know, I still pray every mm-hmm. single morning and every single night on my knees. I thought Jews don't pray. <laughs> Jews don't smoke crack either. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so. But uh, I'll tell you, man, toward, towards the end, you know, prior to coming into recovery, mm-hmm. I was intervened on. I just spoke, it was like a week or two ago, the Dolphins, the Miami Dolphins had a National mm-hmm. Recovery Day. Uh, I saw. I saw your post was so funny. See my quote? That was so funny. I'm not a football fan, but I know the Dolphins have sucked forever, and that yeah. was really funny. Well, it just happened. It okay, yeah. So I basically I said, I got clean in June of 96. I became a season ticket holder for the Dolphins in September of 96. Mm-hmm. That's 26 years that I've endured of Miami Dolphins football. And if I could stay clean through that, I could stay clean through anything. There you go. What I didn't know (laughs) 
was that Nat Moore, who is a 13-year veteran of the team who Mm -hmm. played with, like, Marino, was speaking right after me and heard all that, and he's just ragged the fuck out of me. Uh, You know, he didn't even play after 96. Yeah, he's like, you know, I love my Dolphins. Don't Uh, listen to this guy. He was messing around, but... Um, but anyways, I, sh- I mean, obviously you love the Dolphins if you keep going over and a over. a huge fan. Yeah. Okay. And, and it's paying off this year. Thank God. But my sister was at this thing and I actually recognized her mm-hmm. because I got intervened on. Uh, I'm six foot three mm-hmm. inches tall. I was 140 pounds soaking wet, you know, wow. to put it in perspective today. And I'm in good shape right mm-hmm. now. I'm 195. Mm-hmm. So I was emaciated with smoking crack. And I walked into my psychologist's office, who I had been seeing since I was 19, because my parents thought that if I just saw him, I would get better. There you go. And I showed up to this office, and my sister, my mother, and my father were all sitting in there. Mm -hmm. This was a Wednesday night, June 19th, 1996, and that's my clean date. You know what I remember from your story specifically? I probably haven't heard you share this since i heard it for the first time but that you sold the kid pills and he got arrested his name was miles right? miles yeah, yeah it wasn't right. pills it was special k okay so he sold so he's, in, I, in a cigarette cellophane yes yeah, cigarette cellophane i i was thinking about that five minutes ago and i'm like i don't know if i should bring this up on here because like this day and age could that be considered murder kind of thing but. <laughs> maybe we should skip it <laughs> so i was like i thought twice i'm like ah, i'm not gonna bring it up i don't think so yeah, I mean, I was. Uh, it, w- what's even crazier that you're bringing this up right now? Mm-hmm. I was at my old roommate from Gainesville's house that mm-hmm. night. His name was Jason G. We'll give him a little privacy because mm-hmm. you know he's doing big things today. And Jason G. was working for an animal hospital, so he had access to ketamine, which mm. is special K, right? He would get these vials, this liquid ketamine. You put it in the microwave? We would put it in the oven, and okay. we would bake it, and then we would scrape it, and, and then it would become a powder, and we would snort it or smoke it. Mm-hmm. This past weekend, my buddy Fenster was in the area near my house, and he's like, you want to take a ride with me? I'm like, sure. I get in his car, and we're riding to Coral Springs. Josh had to pick something up, and Jason G calls Josh. It's mm-hmm. the first time I've spoken to this kid in close to 30 years. Wow. It's got to be 27 years. He was my roommate in college Mm -hmm. who also had returned home to Miami, you know, leaving school because we were all so fucked up. Mm -hmm. So that night I I went over to Jason G's house. Um, You know, I was in the height of my addiction and we were cooking the K. And by the way, he was giving me free K because that pool table I mentioned that Mm -hmm. I bought, right? Uh, You know, I was selling ecstasy. Um, when I left school, he took the whole fucking thing apart and shipped it to Weston to his dealer's house because he owed him money. Mm. So I had credit with him for the pool table. Mm-hmm. So he was giving me just ungodly amounts of special K. And this kid, Miles, who I had met in an NA meeting, mm-hmm. he was like 16 or 17 years old. He came and met me that night at the house. I used to smoke Marlboro Reds, and I, I took the cellophane off the Marlboro Reds, and I stuck ketamine in it and kind of just folded it up and, and gave it to him. He's like, do you want to come with me? I'll never forget this. It was like 10 o'clock at night. He was going to score roofies, like some kind of pills. And I'm like, no, I, got, I had something going on. I had to get home, and mm-hmm. I, I didn't go with him. And he went to the Shell station on the corner of Biscayne and like Hallandale Beach Boulevard or something. There was like yeah, a, there's a, shell there. a Shell station, okay? Um, I was like 
at the end of William Lehman Causeway on the beach. That's where Jason G. lived. So Miles got introduced to N.A. because he was in jail. Mm. Young kid. And, and I preface by saying young. I was probably 19 at the time, okay? Mm-hmm. And he was 17. Back then, there were no young people in N.A. You know, if you wanted to see young people, you had to go to the middle of the state to a youth and recovery workshop, and there was like 12 of us. So he and I became super tight, you know, Mm -hmm. because it was someone even close to my age. And Miles always said, man, I'll never go back to jail. He hated it. It was Mm -hmm. terrible for him. And so he goes to the Shell station. I go home. The next morning, I get a call from his sister and she's like, well, were you, with, um, were you with Miles last night? And I said, yeah, up until like 10 o'clock. Why? She's like, he's dead. I'm like, what do you mean he's dead? She's like, well, I guess he went to some gas station to use the pay phone, and it was a setup. And cops came out of nowhere, and he took some kind of cellophane that he had on him hmm. and stuck it in his mouth and tried to swallow it, and it got lodged in his throat. And he went to cardiac arrest, and he died. You know, you would think like at that point, think twice about your life choices, mm-hmm. right? Like, so I, I replayed that in my head a million times. If I didn't drag him into this or if he didn't come and meet me, if I mm-hmm. didn't hand that to him, he may well still be alive today. He'd be in jail because he would still have gotten set up at the mm-hmm. Shell station. But he always said he wasn't. He was like trying to fight the cops off, mm-hmm. I guess. And um, it got lodged in his throat and they didn't know. And, and, what it was, yeah. And he went into cardiac arrest and died. I don't think he died from an overdose. I think he literally choked, choked to death. Yeah. yeah. So, yep, that's the mile story. I didn't get clean till like a year later. So mm-hmm. I walk in this office at Dr. Harris's office, and I see my sister in there, and I see my parents in there. Now, Brian, before I get into this, let me ask you a question. You hear it said a lot in the rooms. Mm-hmm. You really have to want this to get it. Yeah, I don't. What I, are your thoughts on that? So I don't think that you have to want it at first. Mm-hmm. I think you just have to do it. Okay. And then I think that the desire has to shift. So people say like, oh, I got clean for my kids. And people say you can't get clean for your kids. Getting clean and staying clean are totally different. Getting clean, any means necessary for your kids, by accident, against your will. You can hate it. You don't even have to want it. But it's like if you want abs and I don't want abs, but we both do sit-ups until we're blue in the face every night fuck, I got abs, you know? So it's like, you don't really need to want it, but eventually when pain is not a motivator, you need to want something. Thank you for saying that. Because you, you and, and we're one of the few, mm-hmm, that believe it that. or not, who believe that, Yeah, right? There's so many sayings. Oh, if you don't want it, don't worry about it. You won't get it. We'll mm-hmm. refund your misery. Fuck yeah. off, okay? Yeah, because I didn't really know if I, and you don't need to, People would say you're not ready. That's like my biggest thing, especially working in treatment. Well, it's, just the same, it's the same thing. Yeah. Oh, you're not re- Maybe they're not ready. It's like I, didn't, I wasn't ready for a year and a half. I wasn't going to stay in recovery for the rest of my life. I wasn't ready to never drink again. I wasn't ready to do all this stuff. It was literally like one little step in front of another step and then like being suicidal and not killing myself and like waking up one more day and doing a little step more. And then one day staying clean started to look better than using. But for a year and a half, using looked better than staying clean. Look, I didn't walk into that office that day for a planned intervention on my part, okay? I walked in that office for my fucking therapy appointment. (laughs) Now, I will tell you, okay, I I skipped over this part, and so just remind me to get back to that office visit. Uh Uh, Two years before that, when I was in Gainesville, Mm -hmm. and I was living that high lifestyle, and 
I had eventually started smoking crack in Gainesville, okay? Mm. And this is past the point of me driving to Boca to pick up a quarter of a key, uh, quarter of a pound of cocaine mm. and transporting from Boca back to Gainesville, snorting lines off CD cases in my car with my friend hanging out the sunroof going like this in the wind with a quarter <laughs> of a pound of cocaine in the car. Like, just you don't think, right? Yeah. I'm back in the student ghetto. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, at the same person's house that I tried ecstasy at for the first time. And I'm there to pick up my old roommate, Mike Karsh. And we were going to go to dinner. And he gave me, like, I pulled up and he stuck his head out the door and he gave me, like, come on in for a minute. I'm not fully dressed. You know, mm-hmm. I got to get. So I parked my car and I walk inside and there's like 18 of my closest friends with one empty spot on the couch, a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts, and a large hot coffee. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the cable box and it said 8.06 p.m. Never forget that. And here was a room of 18 people who I got high with that were doing an intervention on me. Oh, they're interventioning you and that's why they asked you to come inside? Correct. With the quarter pound of coke in your car? No, no, no. That was... Okay, okay. Uh, this was like what my <laughs> oh, yeah, life this, looked like gotcha, at that point. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Because okay. I was like, that's horrible. No, 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 okay. no. So your drug addict friends... My drug addict friends... Intervention. Are having a very well thought out and planned intervention on me. Okay. Wow. I sat down on the on the couch. There uh-huh. was Krispy Kreme and a coffee, two of my favorite things, mm-hmm. and crack. <laughs> and I look at the cable box. It said 8.06 p.m. Mm-hmm. They each went around and said a few things about the Barry that they met initially. Mm-hmm. And then they went around and said all the things about who I am currently. Welcome to the Genesis House powered by the United Recovery Project. Located in sunny South Florida, we offer drug and alcohol addiction treatment as well as a major focus on dual diagnosis. Our addiction therapy programs include behavioral therapy, 12-step facilitation, psychotherapy, life skills training, and more. At our facility, you can expect a low client-to-staff ratio, daily group therapy, weekly one-on-one therapy sessions, and luxury amenities such as volleyball, basketball, pool, chiropractor, personal trainer, yoga, massage therapy, and more. Contact the United Recovery Project today and let's create a better tomorrow. This intervention did not finish until close to midnight. Okay, so four hours. Who trained them to do this? Bro, I have no... Hey, listen, they were at UF. They're smart people, okay? <laughs> smart people. <laughs> it wasn't quite Ivy League at that point. Okay. But, yeah, they... They, they put it together. We go through this whole intervention. Mm-hmm. They have me sign some papers at the end that say, like, I'm going to... They've already prearranged wow. places for me to go on campus in, in Tigert Hall to this counseling center mm-hmm. for this intensive outpatient group that mm-hmm. runs three days a week. They brought up something called NA meetings, which I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. And they made me sign all these documents and that if I didn't abide by it, they were going to call my family. Wow. At, the, at the end, I was like, all right, I'm going to give this thing a shot. And then I'm like, but guys, I have this really big bag of weed in my pocket. And back then we called it crippy. You know, it yeah. was like there was no we seeds. It, it was too. fucking dank. It was smelly. It was wet. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I really appreciate you guys and everything we've done. And I'm fully on board. 
do you think we can have like one last kind of hurrah together just to kind of celebrate the intervention and my new way of life? And they all went in the other room to huddle up and they came out there like, all right, but just this once. And you guys all gonna, smoked. And we all got high together. That's cool. <laughs> so it was there like, they meant well. Right, but you know you have an issue mm-hmm. if the people you were doing an eight ball with the week before yeah. are now sitting in a circle trying to get you clean. Like, yeah, I have friends who kind of distance myself, and they try to have that talk with me. But like I said, like they did drugs for fun, and they were having fun, and they were still connecting. I just needed to get high and did as much as I could, and it wasn't about laughing and talking with anybody. Looking back, I didn't think they were drug addicts, but they were smoking crack, they were doing coke, and they were doing, you know. But there's you're, you're right. There's a, a distinct difference in personality for mm-hmm. somebody who's afflicted with the disease. Like all those people now who are in mm-hmm. that room, two of them are judges. Wow. In Broward County. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> one of them's one, two, three of them are attorneys. That's one's cool. a chiropractor. Yeah, live normal lives. They all live, you know, eight kids and yeah. white picket. People fence. have college phases of drug use and then they grow out of it. And I always say there's a difference between having a drug problem and being a drug addict. Yes. And being a drug addict, your drug use could be less severe than the person with the drug problem, and you could still be an addict. Correct. So your drug use doesn't even need to be super severe and high usage for it to be addiction. Uh, for me, one of the definitions of addiction is like using against your will, and it, it could it could be that you have that you function, but that you just don't really want to, and you tell yourself you're going to stop, and you just can't. What do they say? It's continued use despite negative consequences. Yeah, continue because we despite. then rationalize those consequences because they're not as bad mm-hmm. because we're surrounding ourselves with people who are doing the same things as us that mm-hmm. are experiencing the same consequences. So. We're not as bad, and we always draw that line. Well, if I cross this line, then there's a problem. Mm-hmm. But then once you cross that line, you kind of erase it. And you're like, oh, well, now it's this Well, line. I always said I would never use intravenously, but at least I can still find my veins. Exactly. Okay, so maybe I can't find my veins, but I can if I inject between my toes mm-hmm. or in my neck because I got mm-hmm. a big, you know, so there's always that. Or you like get on methadone, and you're like, I'm good now. It's oh, like yeah. I'm shooting heroin. Methadone's great. Yeah. I'm back in this office now, June mm-hmm. 19th, 1996. I walk in, I say, oh, fuck. This is not good. I had a girlfriend at the time. She was like my steady four-year girlfriend throughout mm-hmm. college that was a normie. Called my sister to tell her, like, what's been going on with me? Mm-hmm. And my sister got my parents together. And So I remember sitting there, and I was not combative. But I did not walk into that office saying, I would love to stop using today. Yeah, I'm 100% ready to or do this. Or even want to change your life. I thought I still looked good, and I was 140 pounds. Mm. And by 2 a.m. that night, I was in a detox facility. In fact, about half a mile away from where you live, mm-hmm. I was at the retreat. Okay. Wow, you went to the retreat? Yes. I always wonder, like, how come no one bought that property and took it over? Like, That's where I went to treatment. Wow, I can't believe that. So first I went to Fort Lauderdale Hospital to be yeah. assessed. Okay. To determine. That's, That's how they used to, to do detox. it. Right? I went to Fort Lauderdale Hospital mm-hmm. to be assessed, and they said, yep, you definitely need detox. And then by 2 a.m., I was in the retreat here. Drug of choice was crack or? More. My drug of choice was. More. You did everything. Everything. Mm -hmm. Anything and everything. I was not picky. Mm -hmm. Loved pills. Didn't really get too much into opiates. Mm -hmm. They didn't have oxys back Back then. then. There were no oxycontins, right? I did Dilaudid. Okay. Morphine. Yeah. Right? I had my big brother in my fraternity at UF 
left school early to work at a pharmacist in Boca Raton. Mm-hmm. So he used to send me care packages of all these different pills. I didn't even know what they were doing to me. I had a grand mal seizure on mm. Thanksgiving Eve of 1995 after a heat game from trying to detox myself. What I said to myself that night was, my life is not going as planned. I, I was able to recognize the consequences that were occurring in my life. I, I didn't say, I don't love getting high. I didn't say, I don't like how the drugs make me feel. Mm-hmm. What I did say was, maybe the drugs have a little something to do with where my life is today, because this is not exactly where I plan to be at 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Whenever you're told you have so much potential, what they're really saying is, you're a real piece of shit. Yeah. You could have done this, but you suck. Yeah. Right? And I lived my life hearing about the potential I had, but I never mm-hmm. lived with that potential. So Dr. Harris got me into the retreat. I was in treatment with a 55-year-old cardiologist named Rick, 50-year-old this guy, and and Dennis P., who's still in the meetings, who was an accountant. Oh, my God. Right? You know Dennis P.? No. He used to, like, be one of the owners of Lakeview. He was, Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like all these people, like, but they were much older than me, mm-hmm. right? So they kind of like took me under their wing. And But I said to myself, Brian, I said, I'm going to give this thing 90 straight days. And, mm-hmm. and I share about this in my story that for 90 straight days, no matter how bad I want to get high, no matter how bad I don't want to get high, no matter motherfucking what, for 90 days in a row, I'm not going to use. Mm-hmm. And on the 91st day, I'll reevaluate. If I don't look better, if I don't feel better, if my relationships haven't improved, drugs will always be there. Something happened in that 90-day period, and I don't know if it was day 28 or day 35 or day 64, Mm -hmm. whatever day it was, but I woke up without that overwhelming desire to Mm self-destruct, without that monkey on my back. And I made it to 90 days, and I looked in the mirror, and I looked better, and I felt better. My relationship with my family was drastically improving. Mm. And I said to myself, like a good addict, because as we mentioned before, all humans want to feel what? And I said, wow, if I feel this good at 90 days, I wonder how I'll feel at six months. Mm-hmm. So I made another 90-day commitment to make it to six months. I started attending these cult NA meetings. Mm-hmm. I thought for sure they were going to make me go to the airport and sell flowers or hand, you know, mm-hmm. hand books out. You know, they were chanting about God. And it was this, I used to say I was being brainwashed. And the old timers used to say, yeah, well, your brain needs a good washing. Mm-hmm. You know, like I thought for sure. Yeah, and there was no young people, huh? None. I would literally go to Frickna, which was Florida's regional convention. They used to have it in a city called Haines City. Mm -hmm. I would go with Yo Frank, who was in my outpatient group. Okay. Okay. (laughs) He would have had more time than me, but he relapsed. Mm. I couldn't understand why he relapsed. I fucking gave him shit in group. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I had Percocets in my drawer and... One day I just got up out of bed, went in my drawer, took a couple Percocets and laid back down and said, well, shit. I'm like, give me a fucking break. Mm -hmm. You knew you were going to do that. You had Percocets sitting in your drawer. You knew you were in recovery, motherfucker. Why'd you do that? I took that shit personal. Yeah, you got mad. Right? And I remember thinking that I needed to not like drugs. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Harris, whose office that I did my intervention in, I stayed with that guy for a good two years. Mm-hmm. My first two years of my recovery, I stayed with him once a week. He opened my eyes to a lot of things, but one of the things he said to me, if I invented a drug you can do all day long and not have consequences, would you do it? Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and I'm like, no, fuck no. I don't like drug. Drugs are bad, okay? You know, like I was mm-hmm. like that, that brainwashed, 
NA, you know, gung-ho mm-hmm. recovery. I was flying high on my pink cloud. And I'm like, no, I wouldn't fucking do it. He's like, if you're telling me, and these are the words he used, that I can create a drug that you could toot. He used the word toot. If you could toot on all day long, you don't lose any money. You don't lose your job. You don't lose your family. You don't lose blah, 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 blah. And you felt really good. You wouldn't do it? And then I'm like, come to think of it, I guess I would. He's like, mm-hmm. of course you would. And why that was such a pivotal part in my early recovery, he made me realize that getting clean is not about convincing ourselves that we didn't enjoy getting high. Mm-hmm. That getting clean was about how great our lives can be if we stop, mm-hmm. right? That it's that one thing. There's so many sayings, Brian, right? We're the only people in the world that will trade 15 minutes of happiness for a lifetime of misery. Mm-hmm. I got to a place where that was pivotal because it had me own my recovery at that point. And what I mean by that was I was given the power of choice. Mm-hmm. Instead of telling myself I can't do something, yeah. I became empowered to say I can do it. I'm choosing not to. But I'm making a choice not to. Mm-hmm. And that's where we talk about you know sacrificing instant gratification for long-term gain. So it's like, do I not like donuts? No. I just don't want to have any now because I know it'll make me want more and then I'll feel sluggish and then I won't go to the gym. So I'm choosing to eat healthy. And it's like the same thing with, with recovery where it's like therapy. They talk about like your shadow self. And usually like we have these defects of character and we have like these fucked up thoughts and we feel a lot of shame about it. And a lot of times people will like deny their shadow self or act like it doesn't exist or, or just feel a lot of shame about it. And really in therapy, you really want to come to terms that this is a part of you. This is normal. You like to feel this way, but it would be immature to want to feel this way all the time. Maybe if you're an addict, you've realized that enjoying something a little bit is not working out for you because you have the compulsion. So let's just see what life looks like with abstinence in this area for life. Bro, did you watch the new Jonah Hill documentary on Netflix? Uh, I watched like the first 10 minutes of it. But I gotta finish. I heard it's good. Is it good? Stutes. I watched yeah. it the other night. Is it good? It's phenomenal. And he yeah, talks about it. the shadow. The shadow self? Yeah. Well, I'm in therapy and obviously I work in treatment. But yeah, we talk about the shadow self. He talked about the shadow and he's got all these. <laughs> you got to watch it. I'm not going to give it away, especially for the listeners. Uh-huh. I don't work for Netflix, but I'm great with recommendations. There you go. It's a good thing to watch. So mm-hmm. I'm seeing Dr. Harris now. Okay. And he became becomes an important part of my story because, A, he was the one who did the intervention mm-hmm. on me. He's the one that was kind of giving me stability early in recovery. I was attending these meetings. And I decided at that point, so my first six months I was clean, I worked for my father. I was his bitch. Okay. And when I tell you I was his bitch, like I built cutting tables, pallet racks, steel shelving, all in Hialeah is where his warehouse was, Miami, working with no air conditioning, getting up at 5 a.m. Argentinian, getting up 5 a.m. every day, mm-hmm. chain smoking cigarettes in his pickup truck, listening to Caracol radio, you know, <laughs> Spanish radio. Do you speak any Spanish? Entiendo todo, pero no lo bien. That sounds just like me. Yeah. You understand everything. Understand everything. Okay. Growing up, my dad spoke with me in Spanish and I spoke back in English. Was your dad really ashamed of you not knowing Spanish? Because eh, my parents were. Eh, 
I, I just had the honor um, of spending a week with my dad in Argentina a few weeks ago. Okay, cool. I he lives been, there now? No, he lives here in oh, Weston. Okay, but you guys went my to, parents, oh, but cool. we went together to kind of like a father-son trip. And, that's cool. But we'll get it. We'll get to that. So anyways, dirty, disgusting. Mm-hmm. I come home at the end of the day, blow my nose, black shit comes out <laughs> from all the dust in the warehouses. Mm-hmm. Cutting tables are those long tables that clothing industries make the clothes on. Mm-hmm. They're like 30 yards long. Okay. Okay, like 90 feet. Mm-hmm. Pallet racks are those racks you see in Home Depot that mm-hmm. all their shit's on. That's what my dad, to this day at 79 Let's years old, me. still does that. That's his company, okay? Oh so I spent six months doing that, mm-hmm. and I said, fuck this, okay? I now have six months clean. This has been great. It's given me, like, mm-hmm. 5 a.m. wake up, 5.30 in the truck, home by 4.30, shower, 5 o'clock, eat dinner, go to a meeting, come home, 9.30 in bed sleeping. Mm-hmm. Like, that was my early recovery. That's what it consisted of. That's what it needs to be. I tell people all the time, scoop ice cream, Do whatever. keep it simple. That came for me later mm-hmm. at Bagels, okay? But, Einstein's. Yes. I remember. Blockbuster first, Blockbuster. got fired for stealing. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, so I said, I need to be in air conditioning. So I said, let me go back to school. Mm-hmm. Now I have like, you know, six or eight, nine months clean. And I'm like, what do I want to do with myself? And I said, well. And I think it's important because going back to school with six, seven, eight months clean is great. But when people want to rush back into school and all these things, like it really takes six months to really do something a little challenging, like go slow. I always tell people like, dude, the turtle wins the race. Take your time. Take your time. It's better to take your time and not end up back in treatment than to keep half-assing it for years. Well, I I decided I was going to go back. I I only had two years of college under my belt from Gainesville Mm because I left that school after two years. Um, I enrolled at FAU and I was seeing Dr. Harris and I'm like, I was now going to these meetings. Mm -hmm. I was in this whole self-help atmosphere and I'm like, this would be a really great prof- profession, and I think I could potentially be good at it. Mm-hmm. Like, I was good at giving advice, and I kind of understood the dynamic between, you know, a psychologist and and the client and the advice that was given, and I was, like, intrigued by it. But I said, I'm not going to make any decision yet. So I, I finished mm-hmm. my last two years of school, graduated magna cum laude with the freaking ropes around my neck, right? This is a guy who had a... 0.33 grade point average his mm-hmm. very first semester at UF is now on the stage with these magna cum laude, you know, graduating with a 3.95 GPA from college. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing what you can do if you show up to class and you're not getting high, right? Because yeah, we're we smart have people. so much energy and we're so smart. And like when we apply that energy, this one time I was talking to my friends and he was like, dude, how come all your friends in recovery are like all jacked? I'm like, dude, we're just so bored. Like we just have so much energy. A lot of people in recovery are really successful too. And it's like, whatever you choose to pick when you get clean, like you can- You're good at it. Yeah, you're good at it. You're fucking good at it. You figured it out, you know? So I remember my last session with Dr. Harris, I was his last client of the day. And I was contemplating at this point, this is now two years, okay? I was getting ready to finish Mm -hmm. college. I still wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do. I kind of floated the idea to him that maybe I was going to become a psychologist and no pressure from him. Mm -hmm. And so we're leaving his office. And because I was his last patient of the day, he was locking up and he kind of took me out through like the employee exit. Mm -hmm. And he had these wooden mailboxes on the wall with like slots with people's names on it, right? Those inner office mailboxes. And there was like 12 or 13 names up there. And I'm like, wow, Dr. Harris, I didn't realize you had so many psychologists working for you. He's like, yeah. He's like, maybe your name will be up there one day. 
And I was just like, you know, I kind of laughed it off. I remembered what he said, Mm -hmm. right? He and I wind up losing touch because I I was cured at that point. You know, two years of Mm -hmm. individual therapy once a week. Yeah, I I was kind of being released to the general public. Now apply this shit we've talked about. Yeah. So I wind up um, applying to a doctorate program for psychology. I wind up getting in in Miami and I go to school and it's four years of coursework. Mm. And then you, to become a doctor, you have four years of coursework, you have a year-long internship, and then one year postdoc residency. Mm -hmm. So I go through my four years of coursework, comes time to apply for internships, and I was applying all over the country. I applied in Chicago at Joliet Prison, and I Mm -hmm. applied in California, and I applied in D.C., and I said, let me apply somewhere locally, too. So Nova Southeastern University had something called a consortium which was like four spots. It was Broward Sheriff's Office, Henderson Mental Health. It was a the Brown Schools, which was like a level eight juvenile sex offender facility. So I apply, and then you have to go interview. So I flew to Chicago, I flew to California, I flew to D.C., and I walk into Nova, and I sit down at my interview, and Dr. Harris is sitting in there. And now it's been like four, four years, and he looks at me and goes, Barry? <laughs> I go... Dr. Harris, Mm -hmm. he was happy to see me, but he recused himself from the interview and had somebody else come in and interview me Mm because I guess it was like a conflict of interest. Long story short, I wind up, you get matched. Like it's like a matching system Mm -hmm. and I got matched at Nova. And that's where I wound up doing my internship with juvenile sex offenders. And then once a month, we would do rounds at the other sites. And so one month was Broward Sheriff's Office, and the rounds were at the Broward County Main Jail. Mm -hmm. Now, I hadn't disclosed to Mm -hmm. any of the professors or any of the people that I was in recovery. Mm -hmm. So now I'm like, I'm in my um, internship, and and we're doing rounds at the Broward County Main Jail, Mm -hmm. and the walls are glass. I don't know if you've ever been in there, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like bars or so, you know, it's glass walls. And all of a sudden, man, we walk into like the first area where the guy, and all of a sudden you hear, yo, Barry, Barry. (laughs) Everyone, I'm like, hey, hey, you know, and and they're kind of looking at me, you know, the people (laughs) I'm with. I'm like, it's a former client, you know, I'm like, it's a former patient. Yeah. Five minutes later, we walk into another part. Yo, B, Uh Barry. What's up, my man? Uh-huh. Like another former former client. <laughs> Ten minutes later, bro, third stop. Barry! Mm-hmm. You still going to meetings? What's up, my man? So finally, I'm like, these are just my people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that's like, cool. That's one of the, the internship stories. I finished my internship, and it comes time to do my postdoc residency. I wind up doing my residency in Dr. Harris's private practice, and my name made it up on the mailbox. That's so cool. That's awesome. And he continued to play a pivotal role in my life mm-hmm. all these years later. Wow. He and I, then I had to do a dissertation to become a doctor. You have to do this dissertation. Yeah. And I wrote a program. Um, I designed an intensive outpatient program that was evidence-based, which is something no one had seen in 2010, mm-hmm. right? And it was using neurobiofeedback and interactive journals And normally when you do a program design, you do this dissertation, you defend it in front of a board, you have a big book that's made, Mm -hmm. and it goes on a shelf and it collects dust, and you're done, and you become Dr. Barry, right? Mm -hmm. I did my dissertation, I defended it, I had a book, it went on the shelf, but Rick, Dr. Harris, and I took that program and actually created it 
and put mm. it into existence in his office in Weston at the private practice. Wow. And it was called the Center for Proven Recovery, or CPR. Mm-hmm. And we opened as 50-50 business partners. Wow. An intensive outpatient program called CPR in wow. Weston. And that was the start of Your myself working in treatment back in 2010 or 11. Oh, my God. And then um, I started running groups at a small program called BRT Counseling, mm-hmm. which then became Ocean Breeze Recovery. You remember Recovery. you got me a job there? Yes. You, me you were a tech. Yeah, that's so cool. And so I was running yeah, groups. Yeah, I remember you used to run groups there. I was running groups I there. I about that. I was running groups of my own IOP in Weston. Wow. And then that was like... 2010, 11, mm-hmm. 12, right? Mm-hmm. And then I got approached by a guy asking if I wanted to open my own treatment center. Well, first, actually, I got approached by Pete Kogan. Mm-hmm. No, first I got approached by this guy asking me if I wanted to open a treatment center. And I told uh-huh. him to basically, it was a guy I knew from the meetings, and I told him to fuck off. Mm-hmm. I have a good thing going. I'm getting paid great money running groups. I have my own IOP. Yeah. That's making bank. We're helping people. He's like, well, just think about it. Mm-hmm. He's like, will you meet me again at Starbucks in like three days? And I'm like, all right. So I met him again for coffee. And he's like, what, what is stopping you from doing this? I said, well, I've been working with this guy, Dr. Harris, now for the X number of years. And I'm, I, I have this other place called BRT Counseling Ocean Breeze. And mm-hmm. what if you brought Dr. Harris along? So I approached Dr. Harris and mm-hmm. I said to him, I'm like, look, you know, I got this guy. His name's Judd. And he's asking if I want to open this residential treatment program. And, mm-hmm. and is this something you'd be open to? He's like, I'd sit down and talk about it. And then the three of us came together and wound up opening that treatment center, wow. which was Satori. Mm-hmm. So here, Dr. Harris was again, starting so from the crazy. guy who did my intervention to the wow. guy who tried to interview me, to the guy who put me in his private practice, wow. to the guy who, right, and eventually... We were all business partners. That's so cool. During that time at, at Ocean Breeze, I got mm-hmm. approached by Pete Kogan, who was the owner of Ocean Breeze, him and his wife, Kim. Yeah. And he says, um, would you like to open our second treatment facility with us? Mm-hmm. I'm like, what's it going to be called? He's like, Pathway to Hope. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm sorry, man. I'm, um, I was open with him. I told him I'm in the middle of opening you know, my own place. He's mm-hmm. like, all right, I figured I'd ask. Fuck. <laughs> we know how that story ended. Yeah. I should have done that. Hey, um, right. But you live and learn. But anyways, man, that was like my introduction to the treatment. treatment. And now for the last five years, I've been at Recovery Unplugged, which has mm-hmm. been like, it's funny because Recovery Unplugged opened in October of 2013. And I had opened my own facility the end of December of 2013 or very beginning of January mm-hmm. 2014. So Recovery Unplugged was always my quote-unquote competition. Yeah, competition. And, you know, I used to say, oh, yeah, go fucking play drums, sing the kumbaya, (laughs) and you're going to stop smoking crack. That works really well, I'm Mm -hmm. sure. And what I didn't realize was... So for people that don't know, Recovery Unplugged is one of the only music-based drug rehab. We are a music-immersive program, Mm -hmm. okay? There are a lot of programs that will have, like, a music track or a music group, Recovery Unplugged. No, you're literally listening to music in the lobby. Weaves music throughout the entire mm-hmm. treatment. And we have live sound stages built at all of our facilities, recording studios. A lot of our clinicians are musicians, but it's not music therapy mm-hmm. per se. 
we use music more as a catalyst to connect and engage with clients and break down barriers. And for us, mm-hmm. it starts at the very beginning on the assessment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but a little bit of our secret sauce, which is not going to be so secret anymore. When we do an assessment over the phone, you if ask the client's like favorite. Well, we ask them, you know, we get a medical history, a mm-hmm. mental health history, a substance use history, a legal history. And then towards the end of the assessment, we ask them, you know, what their favorite genre of music is. Mm-hmm who their favorite artist is, and what's that one song that touches them the most. They don't really think anything of it. They know we're a music place, so they're like, oh, it's, you know, whatever. They're just asking Kodak Black, Super Gremlin. Okay, there you go. So Kodak Black, Super Gremlin, <laughs> Brian Alzante is, is flying into Fort Lauderdale Airport, mm-hmm. and our driver is there waiting to pick up Brian Alzante, mm-hmm. obviously not holding a sign with the treatment center, but, you know, Let we find know Brian. There. Yeah. And as soon as Brian sits down in that, transport vehicle, mm-hmm. Kodak Black, whatever the fuck you just said was the name of the song, is playing for you the moment you sit down. Awesome. And right away, mm-hmm. walls come down and there's rapport established and they're like, wow, you like Kodak Black too? <laughs> and our driver's like, of course I like Kodak Black. <laughs> it's Nudie Magazine Day. Exactly. You know, Adam Sandler. Yeah. So, uh, you know, of course I do, man. He's mm-hmm. like, he's like, you know, they're like, how did you, we listened, you yeah. know, for the first time. In a long time, somebody mm-hmm. paid attention to what you said. So the music thing starts at the front door. I mm-hmm. guess the best way for me to describe what Recovery Unplugged is, is we're a traditional treatment center that utilizes untraditional approaches. Awesome. Meaning all of our clinicians are all licensed master's level clinicians, right? Mm-hmm. We have a trauma track. We do EMDR right? We have a detox and residential and PHP and IOP and Mm -hmm. virtual. We offer, we have a family program. We offer all of the traditional components. This is what I didn't understand about Recovery Unplugged. I thought it was hokey, Mm -hmm. right? I thought because, you know, one of the owners was a a touring member with the band Aerosmith, Mm -hmm. that this is just going to be all about music or only for musicians. No, it's like a real treatment center. It's a legitimate Mm -hmm. treatment program that not only is legitimate it's evidence-based but is literally Mm evidence-based it had a five-year longitudinal study through nova southeastern university and we have outcome data Mm -hmm. right on on alumni a five five seven years worth of alumni data since we've been tracking Mm -hmm. it you know that shows the percentage of people that are still clean awesome so it, it really has been just in my opinion i've been attempted to be lured away 850 million times. And I think that what I love so much about Recovery Unplugged is the uniqueness, Mm -hmm. is the experience for the clients before and after. Yeah. You know, and and they're just good people, man. You know, we just do things right. You know, there's Mm -hmm. no gray area with us. You know, we don't participate in a gray area at Recovery Unplugged. Mm -hmm. And that's something I respect, you know, especially coming from being in South Florida my entire life, right? This was the hub of gray area for a long time. I know, that's crazy. And then it got cleaned up, mm-hmm. right? So. Yeah, and it's like in Florida, th- there really is like a handful of good places and we all like work together. So like whenever someone's like trying to introduce me to somebody, it's like, I don't really like to make friends with people in the industry, not because like I'm like rude or full of myself, but it's like from from here, I grew up here. I know everyone that got clean here. Like, if you're in the treatment industry, like people that know each other know each other and we work together already, there's so many people that just aren't really, they don't really care, you know, and they're really preying on people, you know? So it's like, I think now in today's day and age, like if you've survived 
the past like 10 years and you're a treatment center, like you're one of the good guys yeah. for the most part. I mean, part. especially in Florida. Yeah. Right. If, if you have sustained recovery on plugs been open now a little over nine years. Awesome. Right. If they've been able to maintain a little over nine years, right. You've mm-hmm. been open how many years now? Almost seven. Seven years. That's a long, that's like dog years. Okay. Yeah. That's like 49 years. Yeah. In an industry where people open up a shop, get audited, do all this fraud, and then close down and open up another one. Like if you've had the same company. Or it's happening now, long, but it's happening. Yeah. It's happening outside excuse me, of mm-hmm. Florida, there was that whole thing that just went on in New Jersey a couple mm-hmm. months ago with that whole um, New Jersey commission meeting, you know, and, and a lot of it happened in California was kind of like yeah. Florida West uh, yeah. around that time because uh-huh. it was. And so they enacted yeah, all crazy. these laws and, and people clean up. And if you don't clean up, you die. Yeah. Right. Because and and to be honest, man, like it's not even cool anymore. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like don't do certain things. Period. Yeah, and there's a lot of things in the industry that might not be like quote unquote illegal, but like as a recovering addict, like it's just not in our culture, you know. And like we have our own cultural norms and things how we treat each other. It's hard if you're not in recovery to really even know what those things are, you yes. know. Because if you're coming from like a business aspect and you try to apply what you do in other businesses here, doesn't really work out for those people. Yeah, like lawyers. Lawyers yeah. can be paid referral fees. Exactly. Right. They could be like, oh, you send me a, you send me a a, a, client. a client. Yeah. Here's two grand. Or any other industry. Yeah, right. Exactly. So there. Yes, you're right. So uh, you you have to know what you're doing to be in this field. Yeah. And because ignorance is not bliss when it comes to the courts, mm-hmm. right? Ignorance does not stand up in exactly. court. Yeah. So, and, and then anyways, you can get a hundred different lawyers to say a hundred different things. My life today, man, is I don't think there's anything really, and I, I shouldn't say I don't think there's anything, but I've been through a lot mm-hmm. in the last 26 plus years, divorce, loss, bankruptcy, beautiful things mm-hmm. that have occurred, right? Love, you know? having kids, being a father, mm-hmm. breaking chains of things that happened to me when I was younger mm-hmm. and not putting my kids through that. And, and we didn't really touch on that, but I think like one of the really cool things about recovery is it can generationally change a family. Yeah, it's like the opposite of addiction. It can genera- generationally change a family. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I shared, I've shared this in a meeting before, you know, when I was, four, five, six years old, my dad used to beat my ass with a belt, Mm -hmm. okay? Like I had those pajamas that had the buttons Mm -hmm. and the feetsy things that were built in. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you you might be too young. I remember those. Mm -hmm. I would slide across it and I would have to pull those things down to a bare butt and he would send me to get the belt and I'd have to go pick out the belt. Before he hit me with the belt, he would make me smell the belt, Mm -hmm. kind of like an intimidation thing. Mm-hmm. And then he would fucking beat my ass with the belt, like till blood was coming out. Mm. And he would just tell me, like, if I just didn't lie to him, he wouldn't have to do this to me, mm-hmm. right? He would say in in Spanish, "No me mientas, mm-hmm. don't lie." Yes. Yeah. And so I remember growing up terrified of him, mm-hmm. even as an adult. Yeah, even as an adult, even mm-hmm. as an early recovery and working for him mm-hmm. and having the most uncomfortable truck drives to Hialeah at 5.30 in the morning, you know, listening to Catacol Radio. A couple years into recovery, 
sought some outside help aside from Dr. Harris. I got together with a, a few of the guys that I was in a men's group with. Mm-hmm. And we, we met with this therapist. Her first name is Christy in Miami. And she did this weekend workshop. It was like a psychodrama, experiential. Yeah, yeah. I've done shit like that. Workshop. Yeah. We'd have to like hit a pillow with mm-hmm. a bat. My buddy Joe, yeah. Joey Buttafuzio, broke his hand. Oh, from hitting it? <laughs> hitting, hitting with his hand hit the floor and he was mm-hmm. beating the bat. He broke his hand. But anyways, she gave me this assignment, asked my dad why he used to make me smell the bell. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sometimes the answer is so obvious. It's like, you know, my dad made me do this and it was so weird. It's like, why don't you ask him? Yeah. Just like, uh, okay. So I was like, all right, you know, again, I'm like very open. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't hide much. I'm, I'm cool with being vulnerable, but it was hard to be vulnerable with a man that I was not a big fan of at the time that mm-hmm. I was scared of essentially. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mother used to say that he's from another country. He was never brought up. He was dragged up. I'll never forget this day. We're at a, a get together, like a, a family holiday dinner or something. I don't mm-hmm. know if it was Passover or whatever. And we both went outside to smoke a cigarette. And I said to my dad, I'm like, dad, uh, do you remember when I was younger, you used to hit me with a belt? He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you used to send me to go get it, you know, in the bedroom, and I have to bring it to you. He's like, yeah, I remember. And I'm like, do you remember that, just asking, uh, that used to make me smell the belt? And he said, yeah, I remember that. He probably didn't think I did. Yeah. I'm like, I do too. Do you mind me asking you, like, why? Like, why did you make me smell the belt? And he said the most profound thing, Okay. It was like one sentence, nine words. I just counted them. I said, why did you make me do it? He said, that's because that's what my father used to do to me. Mm. And in that one nine-word sentence, I forgave him. That I stood back and I said, holy shit. Like, he was just doing what he was taught. And then you think about, like, your dad as a child and what he must have went through. Correct. And I think that that's why the steps are so important and like recovery and like these self-help workshops and all the stuff we do. Because I've done so much shit. It like makes me feel like how do other people live life without doing these things? Because I don't know what would happen to me if I did it. Because I didn't just get clean and my life was great. But it's like imagine you never did that and you still had your relationship with your father. And let's say he passed away and something happened and you never had that experience. I never knew. You never knew, never asked them, never, no one ever thought, and you just died n- without this ever yeah. happening. Bro, today we're best friends. Today we mm-hmm. call each other to tell each other jokes. Like I said earlier, you know, <laughs> yeah. we just took a trip together to Argentina. I hadn't been mm-hmm. to Argentina in 32 years since mm-hmm. I was 15 years old in high school. That was yeah. the last time I was there. Mm-hmm. And when anybody asked me, like, what was the best part about Argentina, my response was spending time with my dad. It was just, that was it. I mean, the food Mm -hmm. was great. It was awesome scenery. It was Mm -hmm. really great to see it from an adult perspective. And my dad stayed for another week after me. He went for two weeks. I went for one. Mm -hmm. And my mom called me like a day or two after my dad was back. She's like, I just want to tell you something. I'm like, what's that, mom? She said, "Uh, you know, I asked your father, like, what was the best part? about Argentina. Mm-hmm. And bro, he ate like a motherfucker. Mm-hmm. He saw his friends from high school. We visited wow. the house that his father built, mm-hmm. knocked on the door and got let in. Oh, wow. Okay? Like uh-huh. we did some cool shit. We we toured 
Boca Junior Stadium in, in Boca, okay. which is like where Maradona played. It's my dad's favorite team. Mm-hmm. And he said to my mom that his favorite part was spending time with me. We have that mm-hmm. today. Where I bring up recovery here is that I have two girls that are 8 and 11 that have never been hit with a belt, mm-hmm. that will never be hit with a belt, that will never experience what I went through as a child. Back then it was called punishment. Today it's called child abuse. Mm-hmm. Right. So recovery changes people generationally. Yeah. Right. So what we do when we surrender or we semi surrender, but we take a chance and make a change Mm -hmm. is not just for ourselves. You know how many lives, Brian, you've impacted? Yeah, you too. Think about it. Think about Mm -hmm. how many lives you've impacted since 17 years old. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy because it's like when we get clean, we just think about ourselves. Of course. But like the program, you know, the one thing that the program is like based on is like you can only get keep what you have by giving it away and like emerges you in service and like it becomes part of who we are. I really believe that like I need to keep helping people to stay clean. And it's like that has grown to this huge thing. And recovery makes so much sense to me that I feel like anybody who's using, if you just give me like enough time, I can make them see why using is is like old technology and that there's something better. Not that like that isn't great and all. I'm sure you're having fun knotted out all the time. You don't know there's a way out, but there's like new technology out, which is recovery. And like that recovery outweighs all the using shit at the end of the day. People like you and me, because we're both very active in recovery and have helped so many people. It's really insane how positive somebody could be when they get clean. Yeah, and listen, the other thing to remember is just because you're in recovery Mm -hmm. doesn't prevent you from still experiencing life, Mm -hmm. okay? That life still happens. Bad shit still happens. We just have better tools to deal with it. Yeah, I'm not addicted to feeling good all the time. Right. Like Sometimes it's okay to just be okay. Yeah. I remember this, I used to go to, me. this was like a pivotal moment in my recovery. I remember I was going to meetings and people would say, how are you doing? And I would say, oh, I'm good, I'm good. And I wasn't. And one time I remember this, someone was like, how are you doing? And I was like, not good, not doing good at all. Yeah. And it felt so good to say, say that, that because I didn't know that was an option. I didn't know that I could be like, I'm not doing good. I don't feel good. I feel like suicidal. I want to get high. And that was okay. And it felt so good. I'll tell you what, man, like to this day, Mm-hmm. I would love, capital L-O-V-E, to smoke a big to be rock. able to go, no, to be <laughs> able to, I, that I don't crave, to be able to go home at night after a long day mm-hmm. and hit a bong, okay? I don't know if they still have bongs, you know, just a bong hit. I think like, they have them. I'm thinking like, you know, there's all these like marijuana treatment centers that are, pot, and yeah. I'm like, if that was around in 96, oh, like, yeah. I would still be high. Mm-hmm. And we won't get into that because we could do a whole other show yeah. on that. But, you know, it's okay to feel that way. Yeah. It's okay to want that escape, mm-hmm. right? I still have my isms. I play poker once a week. Mm-hmm. I'll out myself. Okay. I play tonight at 6 o'clock Uh-oh. every Tuesday. Everyone knows. Every, I don't care. <laughs> I see Calvin there. There you go. Him too. <laughs> <laughs> Not Calvin. He's Not a, Calvin. He's over there hanging out by. We won't he's say his last name. He's not yeah. playing poker. I'm just saying, like, you know, everybody still has that. Like, yeah. life goes on for mm-hmm. people in recovery. I know we've probably run over. This has been, like, yeah. a really good conversation. Though. I appreciate you. I want to thank you for coming on the show. I love you very much. 
I'll let you know when it comes out. I'll send it to you. The feeling's mutual. Love you. Thank you. Love you, man. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.